Hey, folks, we just want you to know that all the views and opinions expressed on Military Historians or People Too are ours and that of our guests. They do not represent any organizations, employers, and other entities with which we and our guests may be affiliated or associated. Okay? Got it? Enjoy the show. It's you need to understand that we are not professionals. No, (laughs) we do the best we can with it. This this is the most professional thing we have is a a good mic. Excellent. (laughs) Well, it does good work. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, thanks so much for taking the time and 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 doing this with us. Um, uh, It's uh, I've known your name and your work, I guess you know, for a long time, and uh, but. Uh, when we were talking with Rick Herrera, he was like, you guys got to get O'Shaughnessy on. And yes. we we're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, we should do that. Um, but, but a huge, you know, just give you a little, little fanboyness. Uh, just a huge, mm. big fan of, of the, uh, the, the men who lost America book. I, that's just Good. such a, wow. What a groundbreaking, just different thing. I, I, it was, that was good. So, well, Brian, let me do a, a shout out real quick, uh, a melancholy shout shout out, uh, uh, we lost the the just just wonderfully generous and kind and and influential Ted Wilson, uh, who uh, professor emeritus at University of Kansas, founding editor of Modern War Studies series at University Press of Kansas, which I edit now. Ted passed away last weekend after a pretty lengthy illness. And on this podcast, a lot of the people we talk with will talk will mention. The, the importance of mentors, especially early in their careers, people who gave them a chance, gave them a break. And Ted was certainly that. Uh, he embodied that spirit his whole career. And Modern War Studies has, of the 300 plus books we've published over the years, I bet uh, there's dozens of first-time authors in mm-hmm. that series, uh, that, that, and myself included. That was my first big university press book. Uh, the military justice in Vietnam book and Ted believed in it and and worked with me and and was just a great mentor, a good friend and everything good about this, this business. Uh, so he will be sorely missed, but uh, a good model for, for all of us paying it forward. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah. But anyway, so rest in peace, Ted, that's, that's all I've got. You got anything? Um, got nothing. Uh, congrats to all our, uh, grad, our graduates at Georgia Southern university who, uh, braved the uh, 90 degree heat yesterday um, for an outdoor graduation. Yeah. Basting but, uh, in, in the, in the football stadium. Uh, yeah. And, and, and I'm going to call you out, man. Uh, Mr. Um, I was going to go, but then decided not to go. I didn't go. I did my time in at the December graduation. So yeah. with that... <laughs> well, boy, it was hot. Right. Gosh, I think All I brought right. five pounds, but anyway, uh, we've got Andrew O'Shaughnessy <laughs> with us today. So Brian, why don't you introduce a- Andrew? All right. Um, Today we have Andrew O'Shaughnessy, who is professor of history at the University of Virginia and the former Saunders director of the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. From 2015 through 2022, he was the vice president of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. And Andrew also spent 13 years at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, where he served as the chair of the Department of History and held the Rosebush professorship in 2003. Andrew attended Columbia University before earning a BA, MA, and PhD in history from Oriel College at Oxford University. 
Andrew is the author of The Illimitable Freedom of the Human Mind, Thomas Jefferson's Idea of a University. Uh, that one is recently out with the University of Virginia Press in 2021. He is the co-editor with John Ragosta and Peter Anuf of The Founding of Thomas Jefferson's University, also done by UVA in 2019. Um to go with that, we have the European Friends of the American Revolution, uh, also co-edited with John Ragasta and Marie. I'm going to try this my best. You're going to have to correct me here, uh, Andrew. Marie Jean Rossignol. Yes, that's pretty good. It's pretty good. Mary, Mary Jean Rossignol. Okay, yeah, Rossignol there you Steve's, go. man. You got, yeah. you got it. All right. Andrew is perhaps best known for The Men Who Lost America, British Leadership, the Revolutionary War, and the Fate of Empire, published by Yale in 2013. That one won numerous awards, including the George Washington Book Prize, the Society for Military History's Distinguished Book Award in U.S. History, the National Society of Daughters of the American Revolution's Excellence in American History Book Award, and the New York Historical Society Annual American History Book Prize, and that is uh, only a partial listing. His first, first book, An Empire Divided, The American Revolution and the British Caribbean, was done by UPenn in 2000, and it has now gone through its third printing. In addition, Andrew is widely published in many of the top journals in the field. Andrew is an award-winning teacher, and he has held numerous visiting professorships and fellowships. Most recently, he was a visiting international fellow at the Wilberforce Institute at Hull University. In 2016 uh, through 2017, he was the Sons of the American Revolution visiting professor at King's College London. Andrew is a fellow of the American Antiquarian Society and, of course, a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Um, this is a, a very, very, um, you know, kind of uh, surface um, reading of, of Andrew's CV. We are really pleased to, uh, to have you with us today and uh, welcome. Brian, thank you very much indeed for that nice introduction. Yeah. It's good to join you and Bill. Yeah, we're really, yes. really thrilled to have you. So uh, this podcast uh, is is really about you. We're going to talk about your work, but uh, mm -hmm. you know, we want to know what made you who you are. So let's start off by um, talking about where you're from. What did your parents do? Um, you know, what kind of family did you grow up in, and and how did you get into history? So the, these are all very much connected uh, because I grew up in Britain, in Bedfordshire, which is perhaps the most central part of England, uh, quite close to the university town of Cambridge. But at the age of seven, my parents started uh, spending long periods in America, in New York. My father was teaching at uh, Columbia University Business School, yeah. and he imagined this was going to be short term. <laughs> and... Uh, he said, I'll never get tenure. You know, they have five people for every slot, uh, all of whom are better qualified than myself. And uh, he eventually spent 30 years there and finished his career there. Wow. Uh, and they did at one point look at uh, my brother and I coming out uh, and spending a year in a school in the United States. But the schools in Britain said the you know, that they we would lose our place. Um, so it turned out that, uh, in fact, we stayed in Britain. But the consequence of that was that from the age of seven onwards, I was visiting the United States at least twice a year. My parents would come over for the entire summer. 
and I became interested in the interconnections between British and American history. And it was particularly intriguing because we weren't really taught any American history. So the sense of American history I got was going around uh, museums and sites in New York. Uh, And, of course, the colonial past there is very disguised. But you would see things like a, a plaque, um, you know, in in an underpass at Columbia University to a battle that had been fought there between uh, the British and Americans during the Revolution, and that kind of uh, sight caught my interest. And then in my teens, I decided I wanted to make a a film, a documentary film about the history of the village that I had grown up in. It was called Blunham in Bedfordshire. And in order to do the script for the film, I felt I needed to go to the local archives and research. Um, and that became endless. I collected uh, a great deal of uh, material. And Uh, eventually a wonderful woman who was the chief archivist called Patricia Bell said to me, you know, you you need to focus. Um, I've written up a lot of the bits, the medieval history of the village, but there's one area I never really looked into. And that was a family that used to live there, a prominent family who had plantations in the Caribbean, in St. Kitts and uh, Nevis. And she said, you know, that's in some ways like your family. They were crossing the Atlantic in the 18th century, going backwards and forwards. You might find an interest. And we, we'd made some trips to the Caribbean over Christmas from New York. And so that did capture my interest. Uh, and I probably wrote my first article uh, in, I suppose you would say, in uh, junior year in high school uh, in which was about one member of the family who'd been a radical member of parliament who'd been involved in passing the great reform act of 1832 which Mm. was basically what gave the british male middle class the right to vote but it was regarded as a major step in improving the system of representation in britain but he'd also been anti-slavery and yet uh, had an interest in slavery and so that that was of interest to me how it was it that he was this radical and of course we now ask this same question for right uh, many of our founders that seem to be a contradiction uh, so that was the first thing i wrote up and then as an undergraduate i wrote up the history of all of their plantations, the rise and fall. Um, finally, as a thesis, I did uh, a study, Siri, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Siri has made uh, her first appearance on the on the podcast. <laughs> uh, who was that? What was I think it, it sounded like Siri's language, yeah. But, yeah, yes. it sounded like you. It wasn't I've, me. Siri's yeah. I've, I've never had that happen. <laughs> No, sort of like hell. You must you must have I'm accidentally sorry. asked a question. No, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> so real quick, Andrew. So, yes. Do, do, do you 
So describe this archive you were working in as a teenager. I mean, I had this Mm. vision of the archivist, the woman you mentioned coming over to you and asking you, "Uh, son, are are you in the right place? Are you lost? (laughs) You know, what, why, right? Um, you must have been one of the youngest people working there or something. I don't know. Can you, no, that, you remember you're, to describe you're ab- that? You're absolutely right. Um, and uh, this was an archive for all of Bedfordshire, okay. uh, which was basically a great sort of agricultural center, um, later you know, quite important for market gardening and sending food up to London. And uh, she um, would often just come and sit beside me and help me to read documents uh, because the earlier the document, the more difficult it was to read. Looking sure. back, looking back, I was quite a nuisance. <laughs> you know, uh, high maintenance, uh, and they must have realized you know, I was just getting information without focus. Um, but you know her background. She, she's the old style librarian from a very literary background who uh, talked a lot about books, um, and she was also just very witty. So I always enjoyed talking to her. Um, and I perhaps got a training in archives that they rarely give you in graduate school. As I say, yeah. you're so far ahead yeah. of the game. With right. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. I fell behind later. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But still, yeah. that's that's really a remarkable story. Yes. Andrew, I want, I want to ask you one quick question about, um, you know, the distance from your from your father growing up, because, mm-hmm. you know, now um, if I were to take a fellowship in, in Germany for the year and my kids stayed here, I could I could Zoom with them every day. I could, um, you know, FaceTime, whatever. But at the time that you're talking about, you know, even a, a, a transatlantic phone call would have been quite expensive. So, I mean, that must have been a really, really difficult situation um, to, you know, like you said, only have those those one or two trips a year because, I mean, were you did you like write letters back and forth? We did write letters, um, and that was really the only means of communication. The, the phone calls were very rare, yeah. incredibly expensive to do a phone call, uh, and there would be a long period waiting for a connection. Uh, what made it tolerable was uh, my grandparents initially were with us. I have an older brother by five years, and then... Uh, some local close friends who were like a second pair of grandparents eventually took over from my grandparents. I finally went to away for, to school, um, but not till my mid-teens. And yeah. I, I was never keen on this idea of early boarding, even though it's not an common in those kinds of schools uh, right well i I was going to ask that if you if Mm. you spent that whole time in boarding school and apparently not so you didn't go to that until Mm. what we would call prep school i guess right that's right i mean i you know you look at some of the americans who went over during the colonial period to do their schooling in england families like the pinkneys in south carolina yeah and even even more in the caribbean and think what must have that been like to go age seven or earlier and be looked after by the merchant who was dealing with your family with really no family ties in the 
graveyard at Eton, where I taught, uh, you know, there's a 13-year-old who was stabbed to death from the island of Antigua. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 this has gone on for centuries, um, yeah. although it, it is fewer and fewer people really want their children in boarding school now, so it, it has declined a lot, but the, the major ones are still going. Well, you grew up a lot faster back then, I think. Yeah, yes. absolutely. <laughs> for sure. That's yeah. for dang sure. Um, Trying to teach my my 16-year-old how, uh, how to do laundry. So, uh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, right. of course, you know, at a certain age, it, people actually quite like being away from home. Yeah. Uh, they get a lot of independence, even if it's in a school setting. So how do you decide then? So you go to Columbia for years. That was that first, and then you go back over to the UK? Well, how? at that time, and they've changed it now, but at that time, if you want to go to Oxford or Cambridge, you basically had to stay on at high school an extra semester and take special exams and right. do do a special interview. And uh, that meant that you were then left with two semesters to fill. And so it's basically, you know, people call it a gap year, and it's right. still quite common and popular. And so basically it gave me this gap year. And uh, because my father was teaching at Columbia, I was able to take courses uh, for, for, for free. And okay. so, I, so I did a number of courses with the School of General Studies. Uh, and it was a very interesting place to be. Uh, I mean, the, of course, uh, this was then by the 80s, but I'd seen it from the late 60s through the 70s, and this had been at the epicenter of student rebellion in yeah. 1968. Oh, yeah, uh, Mark Rudd and the Harlem Gym and all that. That's right. right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Um, it was uh, I mean, somewhat run down, as was New York in the 70s, but a very interesting place uh, before it was uh, smartened up uh, and yuppified I think the term was <laughs> so was your dad there during all that in 68 was yes he, he, oh, he wow. filmed he filmed the 68 riots oh my gosh um, he was so interested that he got to know the police and went in the tunnels to watch them invade a building um, he had very mixed feelings about the whole thing I mean, he was oh sure upset. He was upset about what some of the students were doing, including destroying the research of one of his colleagues. Remember, you didn't have backup discs. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so forth. And a book that the guy never wrote. And yet he also felt, you know, he watched the police at times turn their badges and just yeah. go in. Yeah. Um, I mean, they felt, you know, it was interesting his take on their perspective, you know, for them who'd grown up in New York, these were incredibly privileged individuals. This was mm -hmm. an institution they looked up to and they were appalled by the behavior. It's very funny watching the tapes now because they're all in jacket and ties. And of course, it's, <laughs> it's all male. <laughs> yeah. yeah uh, right. And uh, it right. reminds you how much... Uh, Everything has changed. He filmed Robert Kennedy coming through on St. Patrick's Day yeah. parade. And it happened that he was in Berkeley during their rides as well. So oh, wow. It, it was a sort of key moment uh, in American history. And that sense of rebelliousness continued into the early 
seventies, you couldn't walk right. a block around New York without getting handed leaflets uh, and having different people lecture you on different causes. And so that's sort of quite interesting in terms of my own interest in revolutions, uh, because okay. although it was not an actual revolution, it was a revolutionary period in terms of uh, social change. And of course, it was a while later that we celebrated the bicentenary of the American Revolution in 1976, which mm -hmm. was actually a bit of a damp squib, but still it <laughs> helped um, It helped uh, to <clears throat> evoke my interest. Yes, I hope they do a better 250th, which will have it 2026. Yeah, well, I was about to say, yeah, I mean, we're about to hit the 250th anniversary, yeah. and, and it'll be interesting... I know um, we talked with uh, Ashley Trulock, uh, who's very yes. involved in the, Ar the, the Society for Army Historical Research. Yes. Um, they're in the UK, and I know they've they've got plans for, uh, you know, a 250th commemorative looking at Britain's role and what worked, what didn't, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, maybe after 250 years, there'll be enough time for introspection, uh, right? And I'm sure you will be involved in, in, in a lot of those discussions. I can't imagine not. Yeah. But, um, what, can you tell us real quick about uh, teaching at Eton, uh, what, what that was like and how that came about? Yes. Well, that, all, I... that holds that holds you know, a very mystic thing with us here in the States. Right? Yeah. You know, it's all oh, Eton, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I primarily wanted to... Uh get an academic job, but it was a very bad period in England. Uh, all of the universities essentially are publicly funded and there'd been major cuts. Uh, so this was a kind of interim to apply and to teach there. It was a wonderful experience and the school uh, is really like a college in terms of its facility. It even has its right. own it has its own Egyptian museum uh, that is so good that uh, the artifacts were displayed at the Metropolitan Museum of Art uh, and uh, incredible library with sort of early folios of um, uh, Shakespeare, um, some of the earliest works. Uh, and books published uh, in America. Uh, and I used to have to dress up every day in a white wing collar and bow tie. Right. Wow. Uh, yeah. Made me look a bit like the maitre d' of a hotel. <laughs> and uh, they, they actually had a special laundry that did nothing but clean these detachable wing collars uh, and I had a lot of difficulty finding the stuff in fact I ended up wearing one of my grandfather's jackets every day that he'd been wearing in the 1920s uh, <laughs> so it, it also felt like being on location for a historical uh, film although it, it did make one feel good to dress up uh, uh, and uh, of course the place looked very smart. Um, it was the year after I left that the royal children attended Eton, and they were, uh, that was both William and Harry. And at the end of their time, some of the prominent ones donate their portraits to the school. So there's one of William and Harry 
together, which I suppose is rather sad in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. a little bit. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> right after that, you come over to the States, right? That's right. That, that was good fortune. Uh, while I was there, I had this opportunity to go to SMU in Dallas as a visiting yes. professor for one year. I grew up near there, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, I yep. became fond of my time in Texas. Of course, it's changing a lot and really developing now. Yeah, and uh, I went to. Uh, I I thought you know this will be one year. Uh, I'll pick up knowledge of teaching American history in America and go back to Britain. But uh, from there, I had this opportunity then to go to the University of Wisconsin in Oshkosh, which is actually mm -hmm. the largest, uh, uh, the, the third largest university in Wisconsin. Yeah, and uh, turned out to be really rather good. Uh, I mean, Wisconsin had had this great history uh, under the progressives in the early 20th yeah. century and what was known as the Wisconsin system, so that even the second-tier campuses had been really well supported. So you were there for several years. You served as chair of the department. So you must not have ducked. You must have... You must, you, how did how did you become chair? Um, who, who wants? I mean, nobody you, wants to. You do find that, you so. can't avoid it. That's going to be in your future as well. Yeah, no, I've done it, and and Brian, uh, Brian, it's in his future. Although right now he doesn't yeah. want it to be, but it is in his, it is in his future. Uh, when, when when I'm your age, Bill. Yes, <laughs> I I felt uh, frustrated because I'd only just got tenure, and I did yeah. not want to be chair. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people have, it's been known for people to have to do it before tenure, which is not good because it means you're making decisions on people yeah. who will be making decisions on it's you. It's a hard job. Yeah. It yeah. is. Um, but uh, it, it was very fortunate in the end because I was uh, you know, headhunted by Monticello. They approached me about applying to be uh, head of their research and the international center they'd created in a brand new library, the first library to a founder. And the head of Monticello at the time was very keen to have someone who uh, was uh, also an administrator. Unfortunately, my period as head of the department continued. So if you've had to do it, it does sometimes open up other doors yeah. Uh, yeah. to the future. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it can be a good experience. Um, yes. It, it can be. Um, well, especially as historians, having practical experience, uh, you know, I remember hearing it argued that the historians of the Second World War period were some of the best uh, in terms of their breadth of writing. I mean, in England, mm -hmm. you had A.J.P. Taylor and Hugh yeah. Trevor Roper. Right. Um, stylistically and engaging a wider public, but also just their practical insights into how things work. Yeah. Um, and in yeah. order to write about that in the past, it, it's important to have that uh, sense. I'll tell you and what, I, though, to, not hmm. to counter that too much, but but hmm. my experience has also been that, you know, historians, we're a group of people who study change for a living. 
And sometimes we are the most resistant to change (laughs) (laughs) in a university setting than anybody. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Well, that's true of academics generally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. As as you know, I've just done a book on universities. Yeah. Yeah. Jefferson basically wanted the faculty to be largely self governing and to be in charge of decisions, not to have any university president or administrators. And uh, even the head of faculty was to rotate, so everyone did it at some point. Uh, But it was one of the Von Humboldts who said having the faculty run a university is like having the animals run the zoo. (laughs) (laughs) It's, 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 it's a strange sort of utopia that you're looking at there. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Well, look, let's talk about the, the men who lost America. Uh, I'm, you know, you'd already done, you know, the first book about the the revolution in in the Caribbean. How, How did, how did you come to that idea of, of that, that project? So the, I mean, in many ways, The Men Who Lost in America was an outgrowth for the first book because mm-hmm. I worked on that first book. I was interested in why the other British colonies in the Americas did not rebel or seemingly give a lot of support to fellow colonists on the mainland. Even though they had much in common, they'd been subject to some of the same policies, they had a similar political philosophy. But I also took the story through the war And I became very aware of how important the Caribbean was in the Revolutionary War, some of the major naval encounters. And yet the books that I was looking at to find this, at least the secondary accounts, you know, many of them uh, had been published in the 19th century. So I realized this side of the war was being disregarded. I'd become very interested in the British Secretary of State for America, who was really the main architect of the war in England, Lord George Germain, Mm -hmm. uh, also Lord George Sackville, um, whose uh, direct descendant I'd met while I was in college. And I'd known nothing about him. He said, oh, uh, my ancestor lost America. Ah. And so that... uh, So you've got that on the family crest. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. And you know, that fascinated me that you know, the whole British side of the war re- really did not seem to be well explored. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the more I looked at the problems they were facing, the more I realized that uh, you know, the, the, these were really quite competent individuals. And I came very much to the same view as John Shy that this was really Britain's Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And uh, one book I loved, I don't know what you think of it because it's in your period of expertise, but uh, David Habelstrom, The Best and the Brightest. Yeah, The Best and the Brightest. Yeah, sure. And well, it essentially, uh, I mean, you know, Habelstrom's saying that this was basically still the same cabinet that John Kennedy had appointed. This mm-hmm. is the cab- Camelot cabinet, one of the most uh, educated uh, and experienced cabinets in American presidential history, and they got it wrong. And I hadn't read that book when I wrote mine, but a lot of people referred me to it. But in a sense, I'm saying these were the best and brightest. And I've had to revisit that book 
um, in one that I'm co-writing currently, though we've almost finished, called An Imperial History of the American Revolution, mm -hmm. in which I've got a chapter on War of Empires. And you know, I push it much further. To, I, I mentioned this certainly in the original book, but that this is counterinsurgency warfare. And on the whole, great powers generally lose these wars against much smaller foe, especially, and the, you know, I think two critical conditions. One is outside support, mm -hmm. allies. And my, the book I have just coming out that I've uh, um, edited with Marie-Jean Rossignol and John Rogosta as the European allies of the American Revolution, we really push the importance of the European allies. Uh, I mean, there are some fundamental things that, for which they're not really good studies, like just the sheer amount of money they were giving yeah. to the patriots. Well, uh, Andrew, Andrew, you, mm. you've been here in America long enough to know that, that mm. we conveniently forget that we could not mm. have done it without the French. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we kind of just gloss that over, right? I mean, La I mean, Lafayette gets all the credit, but yeah, not France. But there's yes. a lot more to it than that, Yes. Right? <laughs> well, I think it's the, the kind of Anglo-American ambivalence uh, and, yeah, yeah, fascination, fascination at the same time with... France. Yeah. And the other condition that needs to be present uh, is that there is real domestic uh, support. And uh, although you still get people saying, oh, a third supported it, a right. third were neutral, and just a third patriots, uh, you, you know, it was clear to me that whenever push came to shove, the people just appeared from nowhere. You know, and Burgoyne crossed from Canada. He outnumbered. Uh, uh, his opponents, Schuyler, by two to one. By the time he got to Saratoga, he was outnumbered four to one. Uh, yeah. And he said, you know, people appeared from places like the Hampshire Grants that he didn't even know were inhabited hardly. Uh, and uh, they were trained to the quality of a European soldier. Well, it's, uh, it's okay until they show up in your neighborhood, right? Yes. <laughs> and then <laughs> and suddenly... Yeah. You know, the person who'd done the most comprehensive book about the British side of the revolution was called Piers Mackesy. And in this new book, I really talk about him and John Shy as having one of the most important debates on the Revolutionary War. But it's not one most of us are familiar with because they were great friends. They were both ex-army officers. And this, this was a friendly difference. They really admired each other's sure. works. But John Shai's basic position was that this was America's Vietnam, it was a counterinsurgency that the British were likely to lose. And he doesn't go into length about the British leadership, but he said that the, these people are not nearly as bad as they're represented. Uh, and he basically wanted to shift focus from leadership to the elements of this war that really led to uh, defeat. And he later wrote a, um, a foreword to Piers Mackes' book, The War for America, when it was republished. And it's very interesting because he told a story about Mackes in there, which would seem irrelevant to most readers. And it was basically how Mackes' father in the Second World War was blamed by Winston Churchill for the failure to create a bridgehead 
in Norway at the beginning of the Second World War. Right. And uh, Nagasi naturally is a part of military brat and a several generation military family who went to a military school. This was so humiliating for the family. Uh, it also meant that they were indigent. Ironically, it was his mother, who was an author, managed to keep them going. And the rest of his life, he became obsessed with blame and leadership. And actually, one of his best books is called The Coward of Mindham, which is about Lord George Germain, and uh, denying that he was responsible or had acted cowardly in the Battle of Minden. It's regarded as a brilliant study by everyone. Mm. But what uh, Shai was doing gently was to remind us that Magassi was obsessed with leadership. And wow. so Magassi thought that the Revolutionary War had been uh, lost because of poor um, military in America. He, he didn't blame the politicians. He blamed the military. Uh, and he argued that it was winnable. And the example he used, which was the example the British would always use against the Americans in Vietnam, is that they had won this war at the time called the War in Malaya in the late right, 50s. Right. That was sometimes called Britain's Vietnam, but they won. So I, since writing Men Lost America, I felt I must go into detail about this. And I did, because uh, there's a lot of uh, literature now on British counterinsurgency warfare coming right up to, um, you know, modern Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. And uh, most of it's been a complete failure. This was, was indeed one of the few successes. But what come, becomes very clear is the reason it was a success. And the two elements that I mentioned just weren't present. Uh, despite the fact that it was a sort of communist revolt, it did not get support from outside, unlike mm -hmm. the Vietnamese from North Vietnam and China, yeah. uh, or Afghanistan, ironically, from some of our allies like Pakistan. They were not getting external support. And secondly, it was a revolt of an ethnic Chinese minority. And they didn't get a lot of internal support beyond right. their own ethnic group. Um, and this, uh, th 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 this is why they did not succeed. But at the same time, it was a long war. It was bitterly fought. And the British had to use, or at least justified to themselves, using brutal methods that we would be very difficult now in a period of much more open media. Um, so, you know, in fact, it was a very bad example for Magazine to use. As far as I'm <laughs> concerned, Shai won the argument. Uh, okay. Well, Andrew, you know, one of the things that Brian and I, and when we teach our, our military history courses, is we, we try to get across to students that, you know, it's the old Clausewitz dictum that, that you know, War is easy, but but even the easiest things can be can be hard, right? Yeah. And the 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 most mm. difficult thing with war often is the then what, mm. right? You know, mm. we can invade Iraq and overthrow Saddam Hussein, but then mm. then what, yeah. right? Mm. And for for the American Revolutionary War, you know, I always try to get mm. across to students that 
you know, yeah, the British, you got the most powerful army and Navy in the world, best led, best trained, best equipped, all those things, you know, but what happens if you do put this thing down? You know, what then, then how do you put Humpty Dumpty back together again? And how do you restore the relationship? Right. You know, th this is difficult. Uh, and, and we rarely do this well anytime, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, the fact is, you know, you could say the British succeeded in Ireland, but at huge cost. Uh, right. And eventually just withdrew from Southern Ireland. Uh, it took a third of the British army in peacetime just to keep mm -hmm. patrols in Ireland uh, with the largest system of barracks anywhere in Europe except France. Uh, right. And the, the, they couldn't have repeated that for America. Uh, yeah. I, you know, yeah. that would have... Uh, Ireland's a smaller country. It's a very short uh, distance from England. Obviously, you know, as Mackesy would argue, they would have used loyalists in the same way as the Patriots used their militia yeah. to control the countryside. Um, and the biggest fear on both sides, the revolutionary war is that it really would just descend into guerrilla warfare right, yeah. right. Um, well, that's very... kind of what it was where i live here you know i live in the upstate of south carolina uh, yeah you know Cowpens is just down the road in king's mm. mountain this is also where brian grew up you know and, and this area was just i mean it was a civil war you yeah. know basically it, it, it was the most vicious yeah i think this is always true in warfare it was the civil war elements that were the most Mm -hmm. the worst where Americans were fighting Americans. And the classic right. example is King's Mountain. Right. Where there's just one British officer. Yeah. Ferguson. There. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I'm sure a, a name reviled uh, <laughs> in what used to be called the back country of South Carolina. Didn't he wear, yeah. didn't he wear like a, like a red and white checked shirt all the time, like in battle yes, or that's something? Right. I think supposedly he was also, if I remember right, but like regarded as the best shot in the British Army. Yes. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, huh. And and he invented a rifle of his own. Right. Um, yeah. And he, you know, he he, he was, was one of the most successful in trying to sort of build up support mm -hmm. uh, in the western part of the state. But he also did what a lot of these armies do. And this is again Shai's point that they actually end up alienating the very people yeah. whose support they need. Uh, right. There's just right. something about having a professional foreign military in your midst. Uh, yep. I know, yeah. you know, going back to your initial introduction, uh, before we even embark on wars, we should be asking these questions. You know, what is the worst outcome? Uh, Oxford yeah. General Paper for undergraduates used to have a question are war are, are battles ever decisive and it's a very good question right. and you often end up conceding much of the peace and think yeah. of the second world war going in britain going in to defend poland but what happened to poland at the end of the second world war in the czech republic i mean they're under communist russia right. of course right I mean, that is one of the wars we can celebrate getting rid of Nazism. But, you know, Russian communism is not far behind in terms right. of the toll on human life. Um, the massacres and genocide. Uh, uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire. That's right. Yeah. Yes.
So, uh, Andrew, for, you know, a significant portion of your career, um, you you directed a center and your work has dealt with a, a, a towering historical figure uh, and his legacy. And, um, you know, obviously, Jefferson is one of the most celebrated and uh, and more recently, one of the most controversial figures in American history. And so with with those two things in mind, can you talk to us about um, the challenges that you've had to face um, in, in your work at Monticello and how dealing with with the, you know, everything that's going on now and, and reassessments of history, how has that forced you to to grow as a historian? So I, th this was a re remarkable investment that this house museum run by the Thomas Jefferson Foundation had made in research, very impressive. Um, it had a library which was only opened a few months before I began in 2003. It had, um, you know, we'd got an archaeology department. We edited the papers of Jefferson for his retirement period. It was part of the great Princeton program that began in at least the first volume came out in 1950 and right. was still not finished and uh, it would have gone on another generation more at least if uh, Monticello had not split the difference and and uh, persuaded Princeton to let them publish the retirement papers that largely relate to his time in retirement that he spent almost exclusively at Monticello in his summer home Poplar Forest. Um, I, one of the more remarkable projects was called the Getting Word Project, which was oral interviews uh, with the descendants of the 600 enslaved people at Monticello. Mm -hmm. And that led to a lot of moving reunions and probably the most important change to take place while I was there was the attempt really to incorporate their story as part of the general narrative and history of the uh, house but it, it it was an interesting time to be there because of um, the change really in attitudes to Jefferson uh, there's nothing unusual about this Merrill Peterson did a book uh, about called Jefferson in the American mind which showed Jefferson's reputation going up and down during different generations uh, in uh, America. Uh, you know, it became much less popular towards the Civil War, especially in the South, largely because of his religious views. Mm -hmm. And was it, when the students wanted to put up a statue of him, they were denied the right to do so. Mm -hmm. um, and it was largely to do with what many regarded as atheistic views, although Jefferson would have recoiled at such uh, right. such a description. So it, we have seen, I think, you know, visitations started to decline. And obviously, this is now in the eye of the culture wars. Uh, right, right. Uh, one extreme, you have people who would like us to idolize him in the way that he was idolized uh, in the 50s, and really not to talk about race and slavery. On the other hand, you know, you're the other extreme, you get people who just want to talk about race and slavery. Right, right. And, deny these uh, individuals at the top were really important to want to basically do history from the bottom up and credit 
others with the uh, achievements. Um, and so we were very much in the bull's eye. The book I wrote two years ago, The Illimitable Freedom of the Human Mind, Thomas Jefferson's Idea of a University, I mean, it sounds somewhat uh, narrow because it's about what he regards one of the three greatest achievements in his life, founding a university. But it's actually a marvelous segue into him as an individual and to get a real sense of Jefferson. It happens to be the period best documented for his life when many people knew this person was going to be a major historical presence and therefore they took the trouble to record in detail the man we were meeting. So at times it's like watching a film. Yeah. You know, you have the description of him meeting the first professor and how he walked into the room, how he greeted him. Uh, you've got descriptions of him on campus uh, with the Marquis de Lafayette, who he had twice visit the university. Um, and, uh, you know, you have descriptions by former students of what it was like to go and dine at Monticello. He invited every student to go and dine there on a Sunday evening. And if that was a problem to them on a weekday and they, what the conversation was like and so forth. And so I begin every chapter with that. Uh, one of the things I much enjoyed was describing three presidents laying the foundation stone of the university jefferson madison and monroe who at the time was the acting president uh, i could never find any detailed accounts of it but when the jefferson papers were looking everywhere for archival material they found that the freemasons had a lengthy description of everything that took place and as you might imagine it was a major ceremony playing hail columbia what were known as Jefferson Madison's marches, kind of political songs, uh, and uh, this huge gathering which was held on a market day uh, when all the crowds were in Charlottesville. Um, it's very well documented, but what I think you can really do with a book like that, and what I tried to do was to incorporate the critique of Jefferson but also to remind us why we've revered him in the past and what was utterly remarkable. And the most remarkable part of this story was that I cannot think of any head of state in history who spent so long conceiving, thinking, developing, and creating a university. I mean, he micromanaged every aspect from the curriculum to the selection of faculty. He designed the buildings. Uh, he'd even unpacked the boxes in the library. I mean, I can see why some people found him tiresome at the time and preferred Madison <laughs> because uh, I mean, this was the ultimate control freak. But it, it's also, I mean, we as professors who tend to be some of the most critical of Jefferson should see that no U U.S. president has ever had this degree of interest in higher education. No. Yeah. And I, I think it's still interesting to play with his vision um, and to remind ourselves what is the purpose of universities and what should we be doing, especially as this is now much in uh, debate. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking as you you were talking, um, uh, you know, it's remarkable. Your dad 
<laughs> was was in New York in 68. I assume that you were in Charlottesville in 2017. I was. So yes. uh so you've you your family has had uh, has gotten to see uh you know the best and the worst of of American history. Um, well, that's very interesting. I'd not really put that connection together. I mean I unfortunately was living right next to the street and heard you know the very worst where yeah uh, oh jeez um and uh but i was watching it i'm afraid unlike my father i did not go to the front line i mean yeah. i went out a couple of times when i saw army trucks and uh mounted ku klux klan members i was not uh, no, no. <laughs> going to uh, get into the midst of that. Um, no. And uh, I mean, interestingly enough, uh, and this is why the response was so poor. I mean, it was quite clear from social media that, uh, you know, the, 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 this was going to be very violent. Um, and so much so that Monticello had uh, hired extra security uh, because they'd been watching the, the, uh, you know the t Twitter feeds and so on. Uh, you know, I remember sitting next to Anne Applebaum of the Washington Post, and mm -hmm. uh, she's fairly freelance, uh, and she was at the time telling me that her teenage son was following this stuff, and uh, clearly had a much better sense of what was going to happen than any of the organisations here in town. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, look. But, uh, yeah. Real quick, let's let's talk mm. about what you're working on now. Uh, you, you mentioned it a while ago, but your, your mm. projects that you have going. So I've got a couple of projects. I'm finishing a project with an outstanding historian, Trevor Bernard, who's really mm. made the Caribbean his lifetime career, and especially 18th century Jamaica. But he's also, um, you know, he's written on America. He's a New Zealander who's did his doctoral work in America and has taught in Jamaica, in New Zealand, in Australia, and spent much of his time and is currently in England. So has a very interesting international background. And we're doing a book called, and it's really an ideas book, uh, and it's called An Imperial History of the American Revolution. And it's looking at the benefits of viewing the American Revolution in the context of Britain's other colonies, not just uh, the Caribbean, but Ireland, Canada, India. And uh, it argues that it gives you uh, this transnational approach, uh, but it allows you to see British policy more broadly and exactly what they were trying to do before the American Revolution. Because some people have said it was incoherent, and it was just uh, you know, ad hoc, uh, but you can really see what was informing it uh, and what they intended. Uh, you can also use the other colonies. And I said this in my first book without giving a demonstration. You can use them to essentially prioritize the causes of the American Revolution and to play down some. And one of the problems about people who write about the causes of the American Revolution, they really don't engage each other. So you've got a ton of literature with different uh, ideas um and obviously there can be multiple causes but you can rank them and what we do in this book i mentioned the chapter i've written on the war of empires we often call uh the seven years war or the french and indian war the great war of empire it was much more true 
of the American Revolutionary War. Uh, the Seven Years' War, a major part of it was fought in Europe. That was not the case uh, other than sea battles, um, you know, coastal areas like Gibraltar and Jersey. Uh, that was not the case um, during the American Revolutionary War. The last battle of the American Revolutionary War was in India. And uh, so my chapter tries to distill this to capture it all. Mackesy gave us really a comprehensive list and description. What this does, though, is to tie it very much to what impact it had on the war in America, you know, including India. How right. did that affect? Uh, and the fact is that before Yorktown, the British knew that they had to try and cut off de Grasse when he got to the Caribbean and that he would try and go up and reinforce the Americans and join Rochambeau. They imagined in New York rather than in Virginia. But uh, and their intelligence failed them for the first time, which is rather remarkable because they watched these ports like hawks. Mm -hmm. um, but also they had to divide part of their fleet and send it out to the Indian Ocean because, uh, you know, a French fleet had gone out to the Indian Ocean. Uh, and, you know, India was really much totally in the balance. Uh, the British could have seen uh, severe erosion of their presence there. And that, that later became what they called the jewel of the yeah. empire. And they also had to send a fleet down to Gibraltar, which uh, was the longest siege in British history uh, that they withstood. And in fact, it's the subject of all kinds of commemorative paintings because it was such a remarkable hmm. stand by the garrison. But there was always a danger they'd just be starved out and the British fleet bro broke the blockade on several occasions. And hmm. so this is all very important, uh, as well as Rodney's decision to loot the island of San Eustatius and go home. Uh, these are all very important um, when you want to try and explain elements in the British defeat and how this wider war played into that. Doesn't, doesn't Cornwallis end up in India? He does, yes. Right? Yeah, I, actually, I think a good study waiting to be written is on these former British army officers yeah. who uh, are informed by their experience in America and become head of a lot of these colonies. Right. Uh, Simcoe in um, Canada, uh, even the uh, Charles O'Hara, who surrendered the sword at Yorktown, uh, yeah. ends up at Gibraltar, uh, Burgoyne in Ireland, uh, and, you know, you can certainly show ways in which uh, Cornwallis's experience affects the way he governed India. Right. And he had a much more successful military career there in which he was responsible for extending the uh, imperial presence to the south in India in much larger battles. And that, that's the striking thing, even during the Revolutionary War. Yeah. The battles uh, were on an extraordinary scale, the number of soldiers involved and so forth. Well, look, uh, we probably need to get you out of here because I know you've got an appointment coming up. So let's let's go ahead and get into our rapid fire segment. Mm -hmm. um, Andrew, so what we do here is we ask you 10 questions. 
Uh, Brian, I got a feeling some of these we're going to hit and some we might miss, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try to do, um, you know, quick, uh, redos if we, if we miss too hard with one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, just tell us what you think. And, uh, as always, we tell our guests that it is our show. So we reserve the right to, uh, comment and judge. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so All Brian, right. go. All right. Um, which football club do you support? I'm not a big sportsman, although <laughs> as a child I grew up near Manchester, so Man United would probably okay. Okay. Uh, that, that was my cousin who was really keen on football. That was his team. All right. So yeah, man, all right, okay. We'll, we'll go fair with enough. that. Um this one I think you will have an answer for. Um the most memorable visitor you hosted uh, or dealt with at Monticello. Um there, there were a lot. I mean, President George Bush yeah. visited uh, Kamani, the former president of Iran. Uh, that was mm -hmm. probably the most dramatic. There was a helicopter gunship uh, on the uh, roof. Oh, wow. During the uh, visit, uh, Colin Powell, uh, you know, it was quite, um, quite the list. Uh, yeah. All right, so you get to listen to only one band or singer for the rest of your life. <laughs> you know, this again is awful because I'm not really into modern music. I, Doesn't I have to be to, modern music. Yeah, I, can, I, I, I used yeah. to joke that my favorite band was the Grenadier Guards. <laughs> I, I, had a, I had a contemporary at college who said, uh, I was the only person he knew along with his father who actually enjoyed marches. <laughs> <laughs> so something like that then? Yes. What would you go with? Okay, no. The Redetsky march or something, yes. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. Good that's, good that's, a, that's a new one for us, but I totally understand <laughs> it. Good, uh, good luck with this next question, Bill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, no, this is kidding. So what, what are you binge watching? Um. Actually, I recently binge-watched the last episode, set of episodes of The Crown. Okay. And uh, right. I, f I feel guilty about it. It seems almost voyeuristic. Uh, <laughs> it, it kind of appalls me as a historian because some aspects of it, they go to unbelievable levels to, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of trying to recreate you know, what it looked and sounded like, uh, even with big mobile phones in the right. mid-80s. Um, and yet, at the same time, they take outrageous liberties uh, to the point they've had to sort of put a disclaimer saying that this has no yeah. uh, bearing on facts. This is entertainment, yeah. This is so entertainment, did, yeah. Did you watch, what was the thing on American Movie Classics on AMC, the, the American Revolutionary War, The Spies? Um, I did see some of that, yes. Yeah. Yes. I can't remember what it's called. Turn, Turncoat, it, right? Turn, yes, that's right, yeah. 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 I did watch, I, mean, I enjoy those kinds of things. I'm always yeah. interested in film recreations of the revolution not least because i sometimes would use short clips as does west point you know when you yeah, uh, sure. that, that can yeah. help illustrate uh yeah i mean uh of course the patriot is one i love to show in terms of how wrong it was and yet yeah. at the same time it 
it, there are it, some good it, scenes it was, in it. It was on the verge of being one of the greatest movies about the American Revolution. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But he couldn't resist uh, being Mel Gibson. He Gibson. couldn't, yeah. he couldn't oh, resist uh, being a little too partisan in the slavery in South right. Carolina yeah. looked like Club Med. Uh, well, and he and, and, he and his uh, sons, he and his yeah. sons rack up a pretty good kill count too. I mean, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. How many, <laughs> how many yeah, they they became they very proficient with the hatchet. <laughs> they, they, uh, and of course, it really plays into this idea of the war won by militia. Right. And the Continental Army is just yeah, uh, yeah. sidekicks. And yet all the big turning points were those uh, the Continentals. major yeah. battles. But the yeah. militia, of course, were also critical in terms of the backup and support. Well, certainly at Calpins. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. So, All right. Um, this, this, this could be a difficult question for you or maybe really <laughs> easy. Best biography of Jefferson? Um, well, the, the most... Um, Current uh, and up to date is John Bull, uh, you know, from Texas, um, and I think for a popular biography for general readers, because Bull's is very detailed, uh, uh, probably John Meacham is mm. also. Oh, okay. you know, yeah. The, yeah. These are both up to date, uh, right, and readable. Um, there are obviously books of the past that I've enjoyed that are now uh limited uh and i'd actually certainly recommend my own even if you just want a general yeah sense of yeah. jefferson uh what i was doing in the men who lost america in that last book is looking at a person under a lot of pressure making decisions and doing something they're passionate about and i th sometimes i think that's better than a birth to death biography yeah, sure. right sure. You know, you're, yeah. you're focusing on what what is important to them and how they go about it. Yeah. And you, you therefore get a real sense of their yeah. leadership. Fair point. All right. Another reading question. What are you currently reading for pleasure? Um, actually, I'm reading You know, a lot of my reading is uh, not necessarily for pleasure. Well, it's pleasurable, yeah. but it's yeah. for books. I'm currently reading a book. Um, on the came from the Cambridge history of India, uh, written by a friend of mine, Peter Marshall. Um, but I've got others uh, in the list. Uh, I last year I did something completely different and led a tour of the Greek islands and talked about the Greek influence on the founders. Uh, and I became quite interested in Lord Byron's period in Greece and the Greek revolution. So I'm going to, I have to admit, I do enjoy reading a history as a pastime, but not necessarily just my specialist yeah. area. And so that that's next in the works in terms of my okay. reading, the, the great Greek rebellion uh, and revolution of 1820, you know, basically the time of your anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Uh, and needless to say, Jefferson was corresponding with one right. of them but you suddenly realize that even ideas we credit to the scottish enlightenment have a an earlier greek uh, but yeah. very few yeah. even of the founders very few of them could really tackle greek they largely tackle latin so yeah. what they knew of greece came through the romans Okay, let's uh, look at look at your mm. your surrounding area there in Charlottesville. Mm. Uh, what's what's your favorite winery in the area? 
Oh, well, uh, I'm, uh, I'm very partial to Gabrielle Rousey. Okay. Uh, who happens to be the vintner for Monticello and the father of um, the uh, Virginia wine industry. Um, but he create, he also has his own label that he runs with his son. It's was extremely reliable wine. Um, but uh, there are many others uh, that people would enjoy visiting. Do you know any of them or have a favorite? I, I don't know specifically, mm. but I do know that it is a wine-rich yes, yeah. area. Yes. Uh, yeah. the, the terroir is, is very good, and, and, and there's good, good stuff that comes out of there. Yeah, I think it's currently third or fourth in terms of wine production among states in America. Yeah, it's wow. like essentially it's like you know Central Texas. You know, yes. wines in Central Central Texas. You know, that's exploded mm. over the last twenty or thirty years. But yeah, cool. Uh, okay, what for you is the most? And I know we just talked about decisive battles mm. not being so decisive. Yeah, I was going to say we can change but, it to significant. Yeah, what is the most significant battle of the of the American Revolutionary War? war? Um, that, that's always a great one. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure you get this one a lot. Yeah. I, you know, you, you could make a case for the Chesapeake Capes because that essentially meant that Britain as a naval power was unable to rescue Cornwallis. Wow. And the war to continue. And they were also very close to building up their navy to defeat the French, which they did in 1782. If that had happened several years earlier and France had withdrawn from the war and Spain would have followed, you know, that's an interesting yeah. scenario. Yeah. Obviously, the, the one that gets listed the most, uh, even in great battles of world history, is Saratoga. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. I'll still make a case for cowpens down the road. Yes. Well, I love <laughs> uh, it. It's uh, certainly <laughs> the most fun battle to describe. It if, is. If it? any yeah, battle really can one. be described as fun, uh, yeah, it yeah. is remarkable. And you have to salute Daniel Morgan. Yeah. We got the a British statue. captured in Canada and released. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We got a statue of Morgan down in our town yes. square here in Spartanburg. All right, get, getting close to the end here. I think I know the answer to this based on what you just drank. Uh, coffee or tea? Uh, actually, coffee. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and that, that used to amaze people when I was a child who always thought the English drank nothing but tea. Yeah. Uh, yep. And when I do drink tea, it's always in the afternoon. All right. There you go. All right, always our final question here. Um, so Bill <laughs> is a Texan. I am a South Carolinian, and we have different ideas about uh, about barbecue. So for Bill, the Texan, it's brisket. For me, it is pork. Um, how about you when it comes to barbecue? <laughs> Bris brisket or pork? Um, you know, I like both. And yeah. I've had, we do too, yeah. Uh, I've had yep. the barbecue of both. Um, uh, I forget, what is the barbecue of Mississippi? Uh, mostly, I think ribs, like pork yeah, ribs. Yeah, probably. yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a red sauce. Well, yeah. I like it all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, pork can be very dry, but it's right. the right. Um, you know, if if it's got all the crisp there and it's moist, uh, it yeah. can be the best of all. Well, hey, this this was great. Uh, we really appreciate you hmm. taking some time and, and talking to us. Um, you've had a really, really interesting life. Uh, so uh, I'm sure everybody's going to enjoy hearing about it. Yeah, they're going to enjoy oh. this one. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for doing this. Th thank really you both. It. And thank you for doing the show. It's great to help to engage a broader public beyond just our 
colleges and campuses. Yeah, so thank absolutely. you very much. Well, that's what we're hoping to do. Yeah, we yes. appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you, Andrew. We appreciate it. Take right. care. Bye. We'll be in touch. Folks, thanks for listening to this episode of Military Historians or People Too. Brian heads up the research department and our social media division, and Bill heads up production, editing, and music. We're not monetized, and we depend upon you, dear listener, to help us spread the word about this podcast. So tell your friends, share on social media, listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Overcast and wherever the heck you get your podcast. If you need an idea for your class, make them listen to military historians of people too. Give them some extra credit. Thanks for listening.